Welcome to Bakersfield First Assembly of God's podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon. About this and praying about this, I was like, well, what is it that the Lord wants me to share with you tonight? And it's interesting, if you look at Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1 starts in Jerusalem. It's Jesus ascends into heaven. It's the beginning of the New Testament church, the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's Jerusalem, the center of the Jewish faith and Jewish culture. And if you fast forward to tonight, you get to the end of chapter 28, and it's Rome. It's the center of Gentile culture. And so Acts makes an interesting story arc across these 28 chapters where it moves from Jesus and and the disciples, and that's largely the story, to now Paul and the New Testament church ministering largely to to the Gentiles, which is good news for us. But as I was looking at chapter 27, there's not a whole lot in there as far as like really good scriptural themes. I was like, what am I going to talk about? That's a great pirate story. It's like boats and storms and adventure and it would be an excellent TV show. But I'm like, there's, there's not a whole lot of biblical truth that I could just grab onto. And it's like, I'm going to preach that one. And I didn't know what I was going to talk about. There's just this story about a boat and it got me thinking about stories about boats. And it brought me back to a time when I had just graduated from high school. So, and I hadn't quite started college yet. So I was 18 years old and the college group for the church I was attending every summer did a, um, some sort of an outdoors trip. And this particular summer, we were going to go to the Snake River, which is up in kind of northern Idaho, and it's a great whitewater rafting river. If you've ever been whitewater rafting, it's some of the best rapids you'll ever get, and if the water's just right, it's incredible. And this particular summer, it was. The water was just right. And so we traveled up to Idaho, uh, met the guide. He jet-boated us all the way up the river, and the plan was that for the next seven days, we would raft during the day, camp at night, raft the next day, and eventually work our way all the way back down the river. Well, there's something when you get a bunch of 18, 19, and 20-year-olds together, and a group of us were boys, and 18-year-old brains aren't all the way grown yet. They're, they're not the sharpest tools in the shed. They're not the sharpest swords in the armory. And there's something about when you get one boy, you get one mostly formed brain. And when you have two boys together, one would think that you would have two mostly formed brains, but that's not actually the case. It actually goes the other way. So you end up with like a half a brain. And you put three boys and four boys and five boys together and you start to not have a whole lot of horsepower going on and just a whole lot of energy that may or may not be going in the right direction. Well, we were miles up this canyon, steep walls up above us, no cell service, no emergency services, no way to get out except for raft our way days back down the river. And after the first night of rafting, we were sitting around bored and we decided that a great idea would be to go rattlesnake hunting. And so we thought, well, we're going to go look for rattlesnakes. How would we kill a rattlesnake if we were to find one? And I had a little belt knife with me and my friend had a little Swiss army knife. We thought, well, that probably would be a little bit close quarters combat for a rattlesnake. So we decided that was a bad idea. But in our infinite 18-year-old wisdom, we decided that some sticks and a couple of baseball-sized rocks along with our pocket knives would be perfect. And so off we went, hunting for rattlesnakes on this boat trip miles up the Snake River Canyon. We'll talk about some lessons tonight on this boat ride that Paul takes in Acts chapter 27. And on that whitewater rafting trip, I learned a lesson 
And it's one that has stuck with me. Sometimes life lessons are really big and they're powerful and they kind of burn into your brain. And some life lessons you kind of slowly forget as time goes by. But this life lesson, as I went hunting for rattlesnakes with a small knife, um, is a powerful one. And, And the lesson I learned is that if you do it just exactly right, rattlesnake does in fact taste like chicken. We made it into a stew and we were successful with our sticks and our rocks. But we're going to talk about a different boat ride tonight. There's four lessons from this boat ride that Paul takes in Acts chapter 27 and part of chapter 28. So if you're a note taker, uh, you know what to do. We're going to talk about the reality of relationships. These all have a little bit of an alliteration, which also turns into a tongue twister. So if I goof it up, that's on me because I wrote some bad notes. But the reality of relationships, we're going to talk about learning to listen, the failings of fear, and the power of the potter. So those are going to be the four themes that we pull out of Paul's adventure story on the high seas this evening. And it starts in Acts chapter 27 when we talk about the reality of relationships, the importance of relationships. Relationships are a a thing that pulls people to religion. I think sometimes religion, if you try to lead with religion, it ends up creating a fence or a barrier. If you look at Jesus' ministry in the New Testament church, he used his relationships to pull people into religion. He didn't start with religion. He didn't start with like hammer somebody with scripture. He started with, let's sit down and talk. And in Jewish society, many of the people that he chose to sit down and talk with were people that the Jews or the Pharisees would say, you probably shouldn't. That wouldn't be a good idea. That's socially not acceptable. And Jesus did it anyways. But in Acts chapter 27, there's two people. We'll talk a little bit about this relationship that Paul had with them. And it says this, when it was decided that we would sail for Italy... Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from some city with way too many letters that I can't pronounce, about to assail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. So two people, there are others on the ship, but two people are specifically mentioned in these first verses of Acts chapter 27. The first is Aristarchus. Apparently some sort of a companion, traveling companion of Paul, probably a, kind of a lesser known leader of the New Testament church. And we know that because Aristarchus is named. That's one of the kind of the tells. In the New Testament, there's people that are referred to, but the named ones usually have a little bit more significance, a little more prominence in the story. And Aristarchus appears a number of times. We see in the verse we just read that he's a Macedonian. He's from Thessalonica. If you back up a little bit in Acts, you get to chapter 19, Acts 19, 19. Um, Aristarchus was with Paul when the riot broke out at Ephesus. And if you just say riot and Paul, that's probably about five different times that happened. Riots and Paul seem to just kind of go hand in hand. But the one in Ephesus, Aristarchus, was there. The next chapter, Acts chapter 20, Paul is on his way to Greece, continuing his missionary journey. And Aristarchus travels with Paul also to Greece And then we fast forward a couple of books, and in Colossians 4.10, there's just a little note in there that it notes that Aristarchus was a fellow prisoner with Paul at that point. And then the last time we see him, he appears in the little tiny book of Philemon, chapter 1, 23, and 24, and he's just sending his greetings along with Paul to Philemon. So there's several places along the way that would indicate he's traveling with Paul on the journeys, and he's probably pretty actively involved in the New Testament church. We would assume there's a strong bonded relationship there between the two. 
The other person that's in this first little section of Acts chapter 27 is Julius. Julius is a centurion in the Roman army. It means he's in charge of roughly 100 soldiers, and he's part of a regiment that is slightly more prestigious than the norm. And so we know that he's probably, maybe he was won some sort of an honor, something in battle, something that has kind of gotten him just slightly elevated. And in this particular task he was assigned, his job is to get Paul and a couple of other prisoners from where they were arrested to Rome. And in Paul's case, he's going to be speaking to Caesar. Now, we know from some other New Testament stories that that's a big job. If your job as a Roman soldier is to take this person and get him from here to there, or to keep them in the jail cell, or to not let them into wherever it may be, if you fail at that, the penalty for that is usually your own death. And so it's a pretty intense job that Julius has is to travel by boat all these miles to get Paul to Rome in front of Caesar. So we've got uh, Roman soldier, uh, New Testament church leader. We've got person that's in prison to the prisoner. We've got Jew and Gentile. We've got a lot of dynamics here that would say, yes, there's a relationship there, but it's new. It's rocky. We see here in just a couple of verses that they don't necessarily agree with each other. But at the same time, there's a point in the verses where they come into a port city and Julius allows Paul to go into town and see some of his friends. So the relationship is building between uh, Paul and Julius, the Roman centurion. It's interesting with centurions, if you think about the New Testament, they're mentioned several different times, some by name, some just as the centurion, but they're usually written about favorably. So in Matthew 8, 5 through 13, we have the faith of the centurion who wants Jesus to heal his servant. And there's a conversation that goes on between that centurion and Jesus, and Jesus is impressed with the man's faith. You fast forward just a little bit where Jesus is on the cross. There's the centurion at the foot of the cross in Matthew 27, and he looks up and he says, truly, this was the son of God. Now, did that person become a believer in Jesus as his savior? We don't know, but he at least recognized his deity and, and that was pointed out. Um, Acts chapter 10, there's the centurion Cornelius, where Peter is able to preach from the centurion's home. Um, and then we have Julius mentioned here in this, in this boat ride story. So centurions kind of weave their way through the New Testament church. It's an interesting mix of the oppressor of the Jewish people playing a role in the story. If we look at John chapter 15... I think Jesus talks more about relationships and the power of them and the importance of them. And he kind of clarifies how the relationship should work. John chapter 15, 12 through 15 says this, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends, for everything that I have learned from my Father, I have made known to you. I thought about that with Jesus saying, I've, I've taken everything that my Father has taught me, and I'm telling it to you. And because I've done that, and because you've chosen to listen to me, I'm going to call you my friends now. And I started to think about, well, what about my friends? What about my unchurched friends? Am I taking everything that I have learned from the Father and sharing it with them? 
Is my relationship with that person drawing them in to a religion? Does that friend come to me sometimes unchurched and unknowing about his faith or my faith and say, would you pray for me for this? Does he know something about me just kind of intuitively that, that maybe prayer means something to me and maybe it would mean something to him? You know, does it take your unchurched friends? Do they come to you and just ask you about the church that you go to? Do they ask you about this God that you occasionally reference as you're talking over the fence? Is your relationship something that the Holy Spirit is using to build a, a new relationship where Jesus has a new person that he says, I have a new friend today. And it's because of this relationship that I had with this unchurched person. So if yes, that's great. The Holy Spirit's at work. If no, maybe that's something to think about. If you're thinking, you know, my neighbor has never asked me a thing about my faith and I don't recall sharing it. Maybe this is an opportunity. Maybe this is an opportunity for you to invest in that relationship. Let that person know that they're loved. Let the person know that they're valued, that they're important to you. And maybe through the relationship, you will pull them into religion just like Jesus did uh, in his examples to us. The reality of relationships jumps over to Romans 12, 17, and 18, because sometimes, like in Paul and Julius's cases, it's not always peachy keen and roses. Sometimes it's a little rough, and it's a little rocky, and sometimes it might not always be the perfect relationship, but Romans gives us some advice on how to handle that one as well. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That one's tough for me because there's some people that I really just don't want to live at peace with. I kind of just don't like how they act or I kind of don't like their attitude or who they voted for or whatever it might be. But it's hard sometimes to live at peace with everyone. And we have to be careful if we forget that because then our religion becomes the barrier and we lose the relationship. So that's the first lesson we're going to talk about tonight from the boat that is found in Acts chapter 27. Moving on to verses 9 through 12, we're going to talk about listening. Now, there's a difference between hearing and listening. God built our ears with some little things inside of there, and sound waves travel through space, and they hit us in the ears, and our brain turns those sound waves into something that we understand. That's hearing. That's not necessarily listening. Listening is an active thing that you have to do. You have to pay attention. I'm sure we have all been in those moments where you were listening and the person was talking and then like some period of time goes by and you're like, I, I don't know what they were just saying for the last few seconds. And, and then you're like quickly trying to like get a frame of reference of where they're talking about so you don't look silly. That's, you've got to work at listening so in chapters, uh, Acts chapter 27, 9 through 12, there's an opportunity where Julius is having to listen. So Paul warned them. I love this line. Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous. It's a great place to start. And bring great loss to ship and cargo and even to our own lives. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. And since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. So Julius is listening. Paul says, this is going to be a mess. I think we should do this. The ship's pilot says, I think we should do this other thing. Some other people chime in, probably sailors. You know, and if I were Julius, I don't know if I would listen. It's like I got, I got the prisoner who I think like makes tents for a living. I've got a ship captain. 
who am I going to talk to? Who am I going to listen to? And so he doesn't listen to Paul's advice, and he does his own thing, and it kind of makes a mess. But we'll talk about that here in a minute. But life is like that. We get lots of times where we're trying to make a decision. Some of them are small, some of them are big, and there's all sorts of information that comes our way. And we have to decide who it is we're going to listen to. You know, do we open up Twitter and see what Tucker had to say today? Or are we on the other side of the fence and we want to hear what Corinne Jean-Pierre had to say today? Do we listen to TikTok? Do we listen to Instagram? Do we listen to just the news? You know, I don't, does anybody read the newspaper anymore? I don't even, do they have newspapers anymore? I used to grow up and I would go to the comics. That's, that was the newspaper reading I did. But usually we get all this information, wherever we got it from, and we have to then we kind of sift it through in our own mind, and we just say, okay, well, if this, 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 okay, I think I'm going to do this based on the information I have, but I feel like sometimes that leads us into a trap, and it talks about this trap in Proverbs 14, 12, which says, there is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. We think we know where we need to go. We think we know what the right path is, but it's wrong. And then how are we to know that? Because we have our mind, we have our conscience, God gave us a brain, but our life is filled with a whole variety of things that kind of filter information for us. Maybe there was a betrayal in your life. Maybe there was a financial disaster in your life. Maybe somebody, you had a a tremendous loss. Maybe you had a tremendous gain. All those life experiences, when information comes in, you filter it through these different pieces of your life. And based on the different life experiences you have, you might come to conclusions that aren't quite what reality would say is actually true because you've got a filter in place that may not be 100% helpful to you. It may be a little bit of that. It, it seems right, but maybe it's not. Genesis 3, 2, and 4, this ha- 2 through 4, this happens to Eve. Eve's pretty sure she knows what she's talking about. She's pretty sure she remembers what God told her to do. The commands weren't super complicated. And it says, The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it, or you will die. You'll certainly not die, said the serpent. Did God really say that? Are you sure? Is that what he meant? Maybe he meant a different tree. And pretty soon where Eve thought she had the information, she thought she had sorted through it, she thought she knew what the right path was, all of a sudden she now finds herself on a path that is going to literally lead to death. And so that, that, that misinformation of our own mind, when we get things twisted just a tiny bit, can cause a problem and we're no longer listening. There's other people we can listen to. We can listen to our friends. Some of me and my friends, we decided that hunting rattlesnakes with pocket knives was a great plan. One of my favorite movies of all time is A Christmas Story. My favorite season of all. I start listening to Christmas music in July. Um, But when, uh, and I don't know if we have a picture of that or not, but there's a Christmas story where at a point where there's a conversation about should they stick their tongue to the pole? that's icy cold and frozen outside. And there's a little bit of a back and forth. And at one point, one of the boys, anybody remember, what does he do? The triple dog dare. And there's nothing you can do with a triple dog dare. It's like the biggest card you can possibly play. It's like dropping a nuclear bomb on the conversation. If somebody triple dog dares you, you have no choice 
but to take your tongue and stick it to the pole and hope that nothing bad happens. Well, we know how that plays out. So listening to your friends, not always a good idea. And then we can listen to society, just generally like what's going on around us. Isaiah talks a little bit about society that I think it's, it was written so many years ago, but I think it's very current and very correct to what society feels like to me today. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, who take things that should be, in my mind, very normal. And the world would say, now, that's not normal at all. And in fact, if you think that's normal, you're hateful. You're bigoted. You're too whatever. You're just one of those religious crazy people. And it was like, wait a minute. I was pretty sure that there was boys and girls. And now I guess there's like 62 other things. You know, so if you're listening to society and you're just putting that all in your mind and go, well, that's what I saw on the internet. It must be true. You're going to be in trouble. You're going to be listening to the wrong things. Your own mind can trip you up. Your friends can trip you up. Society around you can trip you up. But there is one thing that's constant. There is one thing that's true. It's like a compass that points to true north every single time you take a look. And it says that in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. All scripture is God-breathed. So when we need to listen, there are times where listening to yourself That can be okay. Maybe the Holy Spirit's speaking to you and you're getting information from God and it's what you need to be doing. But sometimes it's not. You can listen to your friends, hopefully the ones that you go to church with and not the ones that say hunting rattlesnakes is a good idea. Well, I went to church with them too, so that's bad. Don't follow that one. That's a bad example. You know, you can listen to society. There's truth out there. There is. You have to dig for it sometimes, but it's there. But those, each of those three have the, it might be, But how do we know for sure? But this fourth one, when we listen to God, when we listen to his word, when we dig into what it says, we know that every single word in that Bible is God breathed and it's useful in our lives and it will point us to him every single time. So that's what we need to remember. When we're going to listen, there's other things you can listen to and those aren't necessarily bad. But I would hope that the first place you turn, the first words you listen to, are straight from the king of the universe and right out of his word. So we've got the failings of fear. That's our third lesson from the boat tonight. So we've had um, a little bit of a, a boat ride going on. We get to Acts 27, 13 through 17, and, and the boat ride turns into like some scary version of Gilligan's Island. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, and so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Kauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure, so the men hoisted it, into the abo- in, hoisted it aboard. And then they passed, this was interesting, I've never heard of this, and then they passed ropes under the ship to hold the boat together. So the boat's falling apart, the lifeboat's falling apart, the wind is just driving them who knows where, it might be putting them out into open sea, it might be throwing them straight into the rocks, and there's not a stinking thing they can do about it. They drop the anchors, hoping that's going to help, and it says that the anchors basically just drug along behind them. And we get to this next little part of the verse, and it says, because they were afraid, 
that they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along because they were afraid. Fear causes us to fail. It causes us to focus on the wrong things. The sailors were afraid. They were doing everything they could think of to keep from sinking, to keep from the ship just falling apart and they all die in the water. And they're afraid. And I think we would all be afraid too, but they weren't the only ones that were afraid on the boat because I think Paul was afraid also. And we may not always think about that. We think about these New Testament heroes that it's like, these were just men of courage. But if you get to the next little chapter, 23, or the next little verses, 23 and 24, Paul goes after an, a night of this, and he goes to speak to the men of the ship, and he says, Last night, an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid. Now, there are points in Scripture where the angel of the Lord appears, and whoever the person appears to, that person just kind of loses their marbles for a minute. And I think I would do that, too. If just like some giant angel just came down and was right in front of me, I'd probably be afraid. I don't think that's the case with Paul. Paul's had so many miraculous experiences. I mean, his own conversion experience. He has witnessed miracles. He has performed miracles. He's had crazy dreams that changed the arc of the whole New Testament church, all this stuff. So I don't think an angel appearing to Paul would be a shocker to him because he's seen it before. But that angel appears in the middle of the storm on the ship at night. And the first thing he says is, Paul, don't be afraid you have to speak to Caesar in Rome and you're going to make it there alive and all the people on the ship are going to make it there alive also. And so Paul shares this with the sailors, hoping to calm their fears, soothe their nerves, let them know that yes, this is wild and crazy right now, but we're going to make it through this. He's telling them, don't be afraid. We jump over to another story in the New Testament where a group of people are on a boat in a sea in the middle of a storm. Matthew 14, 24 to 29, this is a story we're all very familiar with. And the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves, because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. And when the disciples saw him walk in on the lake, they were terrified. I wonder if they were terrified before, or if it was just, there's a guy walking on the water, that's not normal. It's a ghost, they cried, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. And I love Peter. Peter is just, he's a wild card almost every time he comes up in a story. Lord, if it's you, tell me to come out of the boat on the water. Come, he said. And then Jesus got down out of the boat and he walked on the water and he came to Jesus. And so, in just a, like, I don't know, seconds, they're in the storm, they're panicking. Peter's a guy, he's a fisherman. So he knows boats and he knows water. And he's panicking because of the storm. And then he's panicking because Jesus is walking on the water. And then some split second later, he's like, actually, this isn't a big deal. I'm just going to walk out there. And Jesus says, come on out, walk on the water. And then like the next verse, he's freaking out again and he's sinking. So Peter does like this flip-flop, flip-flop, flip-flop in about two and a half verses because he's afraid. And then he's filled with faith. And then he's afraid again. And so when you are fearful, what you focus on, in Peter's case, the waves, in Paul's case, the the storm, it becomes everything you can see and the only thing you can see. You can't see your faith. You can't feel your faith. And you'll forget Jesus' words to his disciples when he says, take courage. It's I. It's me. It's okay. I'm here with you. 
And I think a lot of times in churches, there are, there are I don't know, there's probably countless sermons out there, if you went looking on the internet, of, stor- of, of sermons on storms and storms in your life, and they kind of draw that analogy. And I think it's a good analogy because it's true. There are situations in life that really do feel like storms. But there have been times in my life where the storm I was facing, it was big. It was hurricane-sized storm. It was bigger than I could figure out. I could not find the path forward. I didn't know what was going to happen, and I just didn't know what to do. And I, sometimes I sit in those sermons, and it's, it's almost, I feel, and this could be just me, but I almost feel sometimes like, it, it's almost like, don't worry about your storms. They're not that big of a deal. And tonight I want to make sure that I acknowledge for those of you that might be in that Paul-sized hurricane storm that you can't see anything right now. There is not the light of day. You can see waves. You can see lightning. You can see scary stuff. And you cannot see your way out of the storm. And sometimes life is like that. And so I don't want to tell you that, like, all you have to do is, like, you know, quote this verse or, or like, the waves may not calm right in that moment. You might have to stay in the storm for a little while. But the thing that I want to encourage you with, if you are in that moment at this point in your life, is remember what the words of Jesus were to his disciples when they were in that literal storm. Take courage. Take comfort. It's I. I'm in the storm with you. I'm walking beside you in the middle of this. I may choose to calm the storm soon, Or I may choose to let the storm rage for a little while, but you won't walk through the storm alone. Take courage. It is I. I mentioned a little bit about fear blindiness and then faith. When we remember it, it fills us. This is a verse and it's it's a big verse. It's a verse I love. I've read it over and over and over in my life. It comes from Deuteronomy 7 through 9 or 7, chapter 7, verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, and he is a faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. Faith will fill us if we can remember that this God we worship, he is God. He is the creator of the universe. He is the king of kings. He built everything. He controls everything. And he's walking with you in the storm. He's walking with you in the valleys. He's walking with you in the mountaintops because he's God and he's faithful to those that follow his commandments. And so if we can remember that he is faithful to us, we should try to the best of our abilities to be faithful to him and walk with him wherever it is he leads. If we're filled with faith, there's just simply no room for fear. And then the last point that we'll talk about this evening, the power of the potter. We know the, the, the visual of the potter and the clay and, and the shaping the clay however the potter wishes. Acts 28, 3-5, Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. And this reminds me of hunting for rattlesnakes. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer. For although he escaped from the sea, the goddess justice has not allowed him to live. 
But Paul, just as casual as casual can be, shakes the snake off, it falls into the fire, and Paul just keeps on roasting marshmallows. And so the people were like, what in the world just happened? This, is, this should be instant death. This guy should have just swollen up, fallen over, and died right there because that snake bit right into his hand and was just hanging there. And Paul kind of didn't even really seem to blink. The power of the potter was on full display because normally that viper was poisonous. That's how the potter created it. It goes out and it hunts and it uses its venom to do its vipery things. This happened to bite onto Paul's hand and the potter said, you know, not today. Today that viper isn't going to be deadly. Today that viper isn't going to kill this person. This person has some other things to do for the kingdom and I'm going to change the rules because I'm the potter and I can. The people of Malta were positive that Paul was going to swell up and die and that wasn't the case. Isaiah 45, 9, Woe to those who quarrel with their maker, those who are nothing but potsherds among the potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Imagine if you had been invited to like some prestigious art gallery showing in Los Angeles. This is black tuxedos and fine gowns and red carpets and it's the most famous of artists and he's debuting his newest piece of art and you're standing there with your friends and you're evaluating this piece of art and you're talking about well I think the artist used these colors to represent this and I I think he chose to have the light come in from this direction because of this and I bet his I bet his purpose behind this painting and and as you're talking Imagine that the artist himself has walked up behind you and he's listening about all the things you think he painted about and why he did what he did. And and the artist says, actually, I chose these colors because, and I chose to have the light come onto the picture because, and, and the purpose behind this painting is this, and he explains it to you. Now, if you turn around to the artist and say, you know, actually, I don't think that's right. I think actually you meant to say, well, no, you certainly wouldn't do that. If the artist himself says, well, let me tell you about my painting, and he does, who are you to turn around and say, what are you making? You'd be the fool to say something like that. And it's, as, we, as we think about the power of the potter, the artist that controls it, the person that designed it, that set all the rules, that made it work like it's supposed to work and can change his mind if he feels like it, it leads me to think about another viper story that weaves its way through scripture. It begins in Genesis. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly... And every time I read that line, I said, well, what did he used to do? Did he have legs? Why is he now on his belly? Was this like some little dragony thing? I don't know. This is just where Mudrow's mind goes sometimes when he's reading scriptures. And you will eat dust all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, which is a fatal blow, and you will strike his heel. Now, if you've ever bruised your heel before, it hurts. It's not a comfortable thing, but you're probably not going to die. Now, if you had your head crushed, that's not good. So we know what's really going to happen to this serpent when we get to the other end of the story. So we fast forward to the New Testament, and there's another viper attack. Jesus finishes up his earthly ministry, and he's on the cross 
and the, the most deadly viper of all, the viper of death, comes up out of the grave and bites him. And the people that are there at the cross, I'm sure there were just all kinds of thoughts running through their mind. This was, this was the Messiah, but he's dead. This was the son of God. I thought he was going to free us, but he's, he's dead. He, he's on this cross. He's been bitten by this viper of death. And then, like Paul's situation, he should have died also. But the power of the potter comes into play and changes the rules. The viper of death bit Jesus. He died. And the potter said, but that's not how this story ends. And so the the people of Malta viewed Paul's miraculous bite by the viper and nothing happened. And the story goes on to say that, that Paul spends a significant amount of time there, the, um, that he builds relationship with them. People were healed. Knowing what I know of Paul from reading through the scriptures, I'm sure he was telling them about Jesus every single waking moment he had. And so I'm guessing many, many of the people of Malta were saved. And the same thing is true with Jesus on the cross. This bite, which should have been the end of the story, wasn't. And because of that, people see miracles. People are pulled into an eternal relationship with him. The wages of sin is death, but the potter changed the rules and gave us a path towards life. So as we kind of wind this evening down, we've had four lessons that we've talked about from the boat. This boat ride of Paul through the waves and the hurricanes. We've talked about the reality of relationships, and they're good. The reality of relationships is they help us grow. The strong ones, the Aristarchus in our lives who's with us through thick and thin, the new ones, the rough ones, the rocky ones like Julius, they help us grow. The potter gives us his word and tells us to listen. Here's the Bible. Here's the truths. They're God-breathed. They're useful for so many things in your life. Don't listen to all this other stuff first. Listen to me. If you can listen to me, if you can filter everything through my word, then when you hear the other things, you'll know, is this the path that you should follow or is this that trap that seems right, but it's ultimately going to lead you to death. The potter fills his word with stories about lessons, about fear and failings, and then he turns around and he gives you verses that says what to do in those moments. It's not always easy, but you know, Joshua's going to cross this river and God's saying like, be strong, be bold, be courageous, get over there, this is the land I promised you. You know, whatever you say, ask in my name, I'm going to give that to you. Be confident, be calm, it is I, I'm in the storm with you. All these verses that say don't be afraid, be filled with faith, and there won't be any room for fear. And then we're going to circle back for the final piece that I want to make sure that you take. If you take really nothing else with you, if you take this, remember the verse from Deuteronomy. It's the final and it's most important lesson because it's what really emphasizes the power of the potter. And that's what makes ultimately all the difference in your life. Deuteronomy 7, 9, know therefore that the Lord your God is God. And he is a faithful God, keeping his covenant of, the, of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. The potter, the creator, the God of the universe, he's your God, he's my God, he's the God of this church, and he's faithful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for 
Bakersfield First Assembly. Thank, thank you for your word and these lessons that come from Acts 27 and 28. Lord, what an adventure story that you've shared with us. It's a, it's a very close metaphor for life because things are crazy and stormy sometimes. But you are God and you are faithful and you promise to walk with us through any storm that we're in, regardless of how dark it may seem, how long the day may be. We can take comfort because it's you and you're in the storm with us. Thank you for this evening and this time together. We pray this in your name. Amen. You've been listening to Bakersfield First Assembly's weekly broadcast. BFA is located on the corner of California and Marilla Way. We meet every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. in person and online on Facebook and YouTube. For more information, check out our website, bakersfieldfirst.com, or download our app from the App Store.